The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. The world knows there's an issue with our continued use of fossil fuels and an acknowledgement that we need to move to a future where we no longer pollute our atmosphere. But how quickly can we reach this utopian future where we still enjoy the benefits of a growing economy without destroying the planet? And can we reach it quickly enough? Or will we ever reach it? And can we do it without compromising our lifestyle? And if it does mean we have to make sacrifices beyond taking out our recycling and driving a Prius, will we really sign up to something that will make our lives harder, not better? In short, is there zero chance of ever reaching net zero? That's this week on The Y Curve. The Y Curve. Well, you've probably noticed that Roger is is not here with his usual clarity uh, because he's... You know, clarity of thought, if not clarity of sound. Absolutely. Well, of course. I mean, I wouldn't have said any, anything else. But yes, he's he's up in Manchester on an iPad. This is what an iPad sounds like from Manchester. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be worse. It could. I mean, when you, when you think about it, it's all part of the ways in which we, we stay in touch uh, right throughout the country. And of course, I'm sure, unfortunately, I'm probably creating um, emissions, using energy, doing all that kind of stuff, because that's very much what we're talking about today. We're mm. talking about net zero. Net zero yeah. being that kind of target that's set by companies, by countries, at various dates in the future, the point at which, if I'm defining it correctly, our emissions are balanced by our carbon savings or something of that kind. Uh, and this is obviously uh, an aspiration, but is it one we can still hang on to when we really can't afford our own energy? Bills? I know. So is it net zero chance is, is the question I'm asking here. And I hate to appear as though I'm uh, you know, not believing that any of this is achievable. But there's lots of concerns, aren't there, that our behaviour gets in the way. You know, we are too short term in our focus, whereas this is a, an issue that needs a, more of a longer term focus. So we hit yeah, the slide long term when you can't even get enough heat to, to get a bath or a shower or, or keep your toes yeah. warm. I mean, it's that's the kind of problem we're up against yeah. right and now. And the other question is as well, through all of this, so we tend to focus very much, and this is a, a question I want to put to our guests, we tend to focus so much on the production of energy rather than the consumption of energy. And, and can we actually achieve net zero while using the amount of energy that we are currently using, plus what we expect to be using in the future as we see more of the third world becoming uh, developing nations and more uh, poor people moving into into the middle class, all of that is going to use up more energy consumption. So can we do all of this producing more energy or do we need to moderate the amount of energy we need? In, in other words, is yeah. rationing going to become part of the picture moving forward? Or, or, do, or do we say, well, there are wonderful things out there like nuclear fusion that are going to set us free from all this and they're mm. just around the corner, so frankly, we don't yeah. need to worry. I mean, you do hear Yeah, that. but how around the corner are they? So the, again, you know, there's lots of things which are uh, more long-term thinking and we here we are struggling Dropping, for example, uh, the energy levy, possibly, uh, you know, on on a, 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 the, the green energy levy, a, 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 the first opportunity, uh, because we're worried about how much fuel bills are going to be in, in the UK. You know, that's what our supposed next prime minister is, is aiming to do. So... Uh, well, short-termism is the real problem. I mean, a lot of people would say that, yeah, short-termism is almost, uh, by definition, what's going on at the Tory election uh, issue at the moment, because they obviously just want the votes uh, of the of the electors of their own party. Mm. But anyway, listen, I mean, we, we're talking, to be brutal about this, we know an awful lot less than our guest, today, yeah. to put it mildly. He's Richard Black. He's Honorary Research Fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. He's also co-author of the book, Net Zero, Despite the Greenwash. It's vital for tackling climate change, so he knows 
what he's talking about. And he's joining us now. So, Richard, I mean, I guess the first question is, what exactly do we mean by net zero? Does that mean no greenhouse gas emissions at all? Or does it mean, well, yes, if we have some, because presumably we would, it just has to be offset by uh, uh, other carbon reduction measures. So, you know, if I fly a plane somewhere, I've got to plant a thousand trees or whatever. Yeah, basically, in most sectors, it's going to be possible to reduce greenhouse emissions down close to zero. But in some, it's going to be more difficult. This includes farming, aviation, mm. some heavy industry. So the idea is you you go as far as you could to eliminating all of your greenhouse gas emissions. But then to make up for that little bit that remains, you would absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So you'd be in balance and hence you get to net zero. So, so it's a zero emissions Zero emissions as a result of what you're doing overall taken in, in the totality. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. But how do you, how, that is going to be more difficult in some countries than others. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably ask a whole load of questions that everyone has been asking for in perpetuity, to, but we'll get those over with quickly. But the one thing that people who are against uh, spending too much time and effort on climate change are the ones who say, well, you know, what about India? What about China? You know, even what about the United States? What about, about countries which are doing very little? Uh, in you know and are growing in in the case of uh, of of India uh, and they've got that middle class that are going to be consuming more energy are they really going to be reducing their uh, their carbon footprint or are they going to be increasing it well those three countries that you mentioned there China India the US they all have net zero targets they have different dates so India's 2070 China 2060 the US 2050. Uh, of course, if there's another Donald Trump presidency, I suspect the latter of those might get mm. undone. But nevertheless, for the well. moment, it's there. Now, it's absolutely right that a country like India, for example, which is in a lower stage of development, should have a later target. I mean, I think common, you know, common sort of sense uh, 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 would, uh, would, would dictate that. But it's also laid down in the in the UN Climate Convention that countries in a lower state of development should should go later. But yes, it is going to be more difficult for some countries than others. And that's for a range of reasons. One is the you know, the stage of development. Another is what's the basis of your economy. If you're a heavy industri- industrial based economy, it's going to be more difficult than if you're a service based economy. Um, if you're in a country that has a nice temperate climate and even and you don't require too much heating in the winter and too much cooling in the summer, then it's probably going to be easier as well. But there's no there's no there's no serious study that's ever been done, to my knowledge, that shows that this can't be done for any country in the world. But but surely the point the point in all this, Richard, is which I you hear from a lot of people is it can't work if everybody unless everybody is in at the same time. We're on one planet. We're not the country divisions are in effect. Uh, artificial because the planet will not be net zero if anyone is outside it and therefore in a sense it's invalid and even if everyone's going at a separate speed so i was reading that uh, for example in india they're saying that they're going to get half their energy from renewable sources by 2030 that means which isn't that far away but that means you know in eight years time they're still getting half their energy a growing amount of energy is 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 coming from fossil fuels presumably so that then becomes the argument used by everybody else to say well they're not there yet why do we need to hurry well, this is true. And there's an, there's an awful lot that we can unpack from that. So um, obviously a country like India, it, it's not only growing its energy use, but it's just growing its overall economy and it's growing its population as well. So naturally, you would expect the demand for electricity and so on to, to, to increase. But also there's an opportunity there. And it's not only now climate change that, you know, that, 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 that provokes the move towards renewables. If we, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, 
And the, the question would have been, why should India move towards renewables rather than coal, for example? Virtually the only answers would have been for climate change and for air pollution. But now it's for economics because new wind and solar is now the cheapest way to add new electricity generating capacity in virtually the entire planet. And if you're looking ahead to what, how you're going to run your cars, um, it won't be long before electric vehicles are, are, are uh, new electric vehicles are cheaper than the alternative. Um, and so there's an opportunity there for a country such as India, for example, to leapfrog in electricity terms, mm. this sort of dirty fossil fuel uh, area. The other thing, which is just like to unpick a little bit from your, your question, we, we can take this in more depth if, if you like, is the notion that there's a hair shirt aspect to moving towards renewables, because this increasingly isn't true. Um, and now if you're asking why should we build renewables rather than, for example, coal-fired or, or gas-fired power stations, well, it's climate change and it's air pollution, but it's also economics, it's also jobs, it's also getting involved in the industries of the future, it's also uh, eliminating your reliance on fossil fuel imports from countries uh, such as Russia, and that determines your ability to set your own foreign policy, as we've seen in some of the discussions uh, in, in, in Europe. There's very few countries in the world that actually export fossil fuels. So for every other country, you're basically going to maintain your, your dependence on imports the longer you keep your fossil fuel economy alive. Those that do have those fossil fuels, of course, are, you know, want to sweat the asset. They, want it. they do want to make the most of it, don't they? Oh, they absolutely do. Um, and of course, for many of the most important uh, oil and gas exporters, the, 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 the private is tied up with the public, if you like, because... The people that actually, you know, the companies that actually produce the oil and gas are part of the state. They're, they're very so it's not the same as in a country like the UK, where you think of it as a sort of private industry and then government policy. You know, they're, they're, they're tied in together. So the, the equation's a bit different there. The political equation's different. But the fact is that coal producers are already having to face the fact that worldwide demand for coal has plateaued and is going to decline. And that may well be the situation for oil before very long. So already oil use in OECD countries is declining, for example. And there are some projections that suggest oil use may already have peaked. But, but Richard, a lot of what we're talking about here is projection. We're, we're talking about aspiration. We're talking about some ways into the future, although, as you say, there are some indicators already of things going forward. But the point in everyone's mind right now, in, in August 2022, is the cost of energy that they've got and the problems that they have in getting what is basically still a fossil fuel-based uh, energy system to work for them and be affordable. Isn't there a problem with saying, right now, we've got to deal with the problems we have uh, and that may, in fact, perhaps put off net zero further into the future because we simply have to deal with people who might freeze this winter. But let's go back to the first thing you said there, which is about the problem that we're having to now face is the cost of energy. Why is the cost of energy extremely high? Because we're getting it from gas. And President Putin has we was weaponizing gas supplies even before he moved into Ukraine. So basically, we need to cut gas reliance, particularly in Europe, in order to, you know, to 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 to, uh, to to support Ukraine and attain that geopolitical objective of not 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 letting Russia dominate, so you know the the, the idea that we should basically um, we can respond to a crisis that's caused by the price of gas by continuing our reliance on gas, it just doesn't make any sense at all. 
Mm. And yeah, that's what we're doing, isn't it? Because we are sort of looking to America. So America is saying, well, okay, we can export more LNG. Uh, you know, we've got a, a problem in that one of their terminals is out of action right now. But the intent is that they will uh, produce more gas so they can export larger quantities to, to Europe. And there was a, a Pew Research survey on this uh, that showed that, you know, there's overwhelming support for that idea. Uh, but the biggest concern about it, 75% of Republican voters said that they, they would, their only concern was the impact on gas prices. Six, only 16% were concerned about the, the impact of climate change on producing uh, more gas. So you, you look at numbers like that and you think, have we, I mean, this is just Republican voters. Obviously, it's very different for Democrats. But you look at numbers like that and think, really, have we moved forward on this agenda at all? So there's a quite a lot of political theatre around LNG. Basically, if you want to get gas from another source, it takes a long time to build pipelines, and obviously you can't build pipelines across the Atlantic or something. So you have to go for LNG. But LNG capacity is constrained. That's why Europe can't take more gas from the US already, for example, uh, as well as from the Middle East and, and, and so on. So basically, in order to you know show solidarity with Ukraine uh, and in order to demonstrate that they cared about their own citizens and heating through the winter, we've had a number of governments basically talking big on LNG. But it takes a little while to build LNG capacity because you've got to have export terminals, you've got to have ships, you've got to import terminals and all the kind of uh, paraphernalia that goes with all of that. Now, having said that, there will be, I think, undeniably an increase in LNG imports um, from America and other places into Europe. But the amounts are quite small compared with the amount of, of gas, Russian gas, that's being chopped off. So if you look at what's actually being done in Europe, for example, uh, in, in concrete policy terms, yes, governments are trying to get more LNG, but they're also trying to accelerate the move to renewables. And so, for example, the EU uh, Parliament uh, earlier this year uh, voted to, to increase their renewable energy target for 2045. We've seen big packets of money for that. They've also voted to increase the energy efficiency target for 2030 uh, as well. I think, I suspect that a lot of people will be reducing, will be looking at ways to reduce their own gas use anyway, because, you know, the bills are just going to be so, so high. And this is, is perhaps a terrible thing. But, you know, because the prices are so high, people will inevitably have to turn down the thermostat and wear a jumper in winter, I think. The German government, of course, has, has voted earlier this year that they should uh, unmothball uh, these some of their coal-fired power stations, of course. So, you yes. know, yeah, and, and here in the UK, you've got you've got Liz Trust talking about getting rid of the uh, of the renewable fuels levy and things like this. I mean, the, the political move, you mentioned political theatre, Richard, it does seem to be moving against the things that could bring net zero. Yeah, so those two things are, are both important, but they're different. I think if there will be a short-term increase, I think, in coal use. I'm personally not too worried about that because coal is declining for other reasons other than climate change. Um, you know, it, 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 it's unpopular, there's air pollution, it's, it's pretty expensive now. So I think those won't be too long before those power stations are mothballed uh, uh, again. Perhaps a shame that the German government couldn't do more to take the remaining nuclear stations out of, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to delay the closure of those existing nuclear stations instead, whatever. Um, in the UK, what we're seeing, of course, is a, is a rhetoric that is very closely tied to the election to be the Conservative Party leader. And I think it's, in, it's important to look at uh, your comments from Liz Truss and so on in that light. The renewables levy will have to be paid somehow. If it's not paid from energy bills, it will have to be paid out of taxation because these are you know, legally binding contracts that companies have signed. 
And so if you can't just scrap it, you'd have lawsuits from everywhere. Um, and also, of course, less generation coming in because, you know, people would say, well, if I'm not getting paid for it, I'm not going to feed it into the grid. Can I just pick up on so, a point you made earlier about the fact that, you know, this is it's it's no longer a hair shirt. You know, we don't uh, we don't need to yeah. suffer to, uh, to to move to renewables and renewables is getting cheaper than than fossil fuels. If that is the case. Do we really need a strategy? Is, is, isn't the problem solved? No, I don't think it is solved. Um, but it, but but it's but but I do think there's a change in the way that um, that that some politicians need to look at this because I, I think there's still a view that in the UK and other European countries and so on, renewables need some degree of subsidy, and it isn't the case. It's absolutely not the case. You know, the price of electricity from like some of the you know the wind farms that are being commissioned now is actually about a quarter of or even a fifth of the wholesale price. Uh, that's because renewables now are funded in the UK on a fixed price basis. So, you know, whatever the wholesale price, the wind farm gets paid exactly the same amount. Now, you could argue that those wind farms shouldn't need that sort of fixed price support. And, you know, right now, if that were the case, people would be paying an awful lot more for that electricity. But even if bills go low, if the prices go low, it's still advantageous to have that fixed price support because it, it increases the confidence of investors. And when investors are more confident, they see less risk, then, then they charge less to lend their money. So it brings the cost down uh, across the board. But increasingly in the UK and other developed countries, the job of government is not to support it financially. The job is to remove obstacles, you know, particularly planning and grid connections. So in some European countries, it can take, you know, five, six, seven, ten years to get a wind farm project approved. This is a nonsense. You know, the private capital wants to build these things. Basically, you've got to just got to get some of these barriers out of the way and let the money go where it will. Well, Richard, what you're talking about there are the political barriers, if you like. You made the case very strongly about the economic case uh, for, for renewables and, and where it's going. But as you mentioned, the, the political climate here in the Tory party leadership election, but more widely as well in Europe, is moving what it feels in lots of ways against all this. Uh, and that there could be watering down of the commitments that were made, whether at Glasgow or elsewhere. Do you fear that's going to happen? No, not at all. In fact, I think the opposite is going to happen because if you know what, what Ukraine, what the Russian invasion of Ukraine has done is, 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 is two things. One is it's shown very clearly that if you continue relying on fossil fuels, you continue to run the risk of paying extraordinarily high prices because the stuff has to keep coming out of the ground all the time. Whereas if you build wind turbines and solar panels and storage, once these things are built, they're built. You don't have to go and build them again. Okay, you have to replace the ones that get old, but this is, you know, you're you're building up a stock of things that actually generate rather than having to keep having this flow of stuff coming in. The other thing that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown is that, you know, basically um big fossil fuel supplying countries can go rogue. And when they go rogue, you pay a price financially and you pay a price geopolitically as well. And every country in the world has the ability to generate all of 
the energy it needs through renewables. Very few can do that with fossil fuels. So those, uh, and of course, we just had this uh, new wind farm off the coast of Scotland opening up as well. And they are impressive structures, aren't they? But three quarters of a wind turbine is steel. Steel is made from iron ore. That's obviously something we're getting out of the ground. We're shipping that ore. We're making it, manufacturing it into a a turbine and and then shipping it out. So you know the question I'm going to ask. How much much of that is renewable energy and how much of it is fossil fuels that are being used to facilitate this renewable energy? And do we just say, well, that's a necessary cost? Because long term, as you say, once the there they're there yeah it's and it's the same question that's often raised around electric cars isn't it you know where does the electricity come from but the Mm. answer is that this stuff is getting greener so right now it would depend on where the steel was manufactured and what the source of that so if it was uh made from raw iron and was made in for example china you know which which still has a a a huge amount of coal-fired electricity that would be much higher carbon than if it were produced, say, in the UK and produced from recycling steel. And, and already, that you know, st- uh, all, virtually all steel is, is recycled. Now, when it's recycled, you don't have to use a blast furnace. You don't have to stick coal in, in, in the mix. You can do it with an electric arc furnace. So basically, if your electricity is coming from zero carbon sources and you're able to use recycled steel, then the wind turbine itself can pretty much be zero carbon. But at the moment, you know, most of the world isn't that isn't in that situation, but it is going to get cheaper. And cleaner. Sorry, it, sorry, it is going to get cleaner. Yeah. I, I asked you, Richard, about, about the commitments, and you didn't think they would be watered down. But are you really convinced that the net zero targets which were set, I mean, these are political targets in a sense. People want to put them out there for, for that sort of reason. Are they realistic? Are they going to be met? Do you really think that actually... For example, the UK government is going to meet its commitments on that as we stand. Well, I mean, we'll only know the answer for that in 2050, won't we, Uh, for the UK one. um, They can be met. Absolutely, they can. And there is no evidence from from the... Because, you know, one way to look at it from the UK's point of view is, you know, the, the, the target date against... But from, you know, the baseline for all that everyone uses for emissions is 1990. The target date is 2050, right? So that's a 60-year uh, uh, period. Now, we're, we're almost exactly halfway. We're just over halfway through that. And we basically reduced our emissions by half. So we are kind of on track. And the economy has not gone south at all. In fact, if you look across the G7 nations, you know, the, the UK has basically done the best job in terms of the combination of growing its economy per capita and reducing its emissions per capita. But many people say that's the easy half. The 50% we did was the one we could do with relatively little pain. It's actually not going to be that easy to do the next bit. So the interesting thing is you're absolutely right. But the interesting thing about that is they weren't saying that 10 or 15 years ago. They were saying, you know, renewable electricity, of course, never going to compete intermittent. It's always going to be expensive. Industry is going to flee the country. Well, you know, you can you can always talk down your progress. You can always find irrational pessimism anywhere. Um, what we know at the moment is that in electricity, um, now clean is cheap. And it's clean is also very popular, by the way, just, just despite what a few conservative politicians might might believe. In transport, for, for road transport and cars and so on, it is going to be cheaper pretty, pretty soon. 
Home heating, there is going to be an upfront cost. There's no doubt about it, but it's a one-off cost. And once you've done it, you're then into an era where you're not dependent on gas anymore and these huge prices that we've seen. Industry is a bit of a mixed bag. There are some industries where the solutions are fairly obvious, like in steel. There are other industries like chemicals where it's not quite so obvious. And then we've got things like aviation and things like land use. So the point is, to me, the logical way to, to see this is that you do the bits you can as quickly as you can, and you reap the economic benefits from that and the geopolitical benefits. Meanwhile, you're still investing in research and development and so on for the other bits. There's another interesting thing that comes out from the history of all this, is that it doesn't actually need everyone to move at the same time in order to produce these benefits. Solar energy, for example. Why is solar energy? Why does solar energy got so cheap so quickly? Well, one one answer is that a few countries, for political reasons, made a big investment in it. So, if you go about fifteen years ago, Germany and Spain, for example, both made big investments in renewables. Now, that creates a, a, a supply chain opportunities. Companies start competing with each other. Companies then move their production to the developing world where it's cheaper. And this is why. So why, why is, you know, it, it, anyone who's looking at buying a solar panel now, part of what they might like to do is just offer a little thank you to the German and Spanish governments for having done this. And we're seeing the same thing with wind. We're seeing the same thing with EVs, you know, with countries like China being so invested. So one country makes an investment. It may be Sweden's investment in, in hydrogen steel, for example, which ends up paving the way to cheaper zero carbon steel for all of us. So you do the bits you can, and then you work out how to do the bits do, that currently look But difficult. do we have all the elements that we need? Are they scalable? So, for example, solar panels, all those rare earth elements that are involved in the making of solar panels, are we going to run out of those? No, we're not going to run out of them. The whole history of mining is that is it, is it cyclical? Basically, the industry, the prices go up. The industry think, oh, okay, high prices, uh, demand's going to increase. Okay, I'll go and explore some more, and that's what they do. And they find deposits basically. So, is it going to be completely easy uh, and straightforward and smooth? No, I think you know there are lots of different potential elements involved here. You've got copper, for example, you've got cobalt, you've got the rare earths, as you suggested, you've got lithium, you've got sulfur, for example. But you've also got op you know, uh, different ways of doing things, particularly with battery storage. There are stacks of concepts for battery storage around. There are stacks of different things that are being developed. So, you know, currently, if you, if you let's say you can't get oil, you can't get oil. That's it. Your car can't run. But if there if there's a, if there were to be like a you know a really really serious uh, constraint on lithium, well, people use a different design of battery. They'll design their way out of it. And if you have a hiatus in supply, the worst case scenario, you had a hiatus in supply for a year or something like that. Well, you can still keep using what you've already got. It's not like a year's hiatus in gas where you know basically everyone freezes. But that sounds like a that sounds like a dangerous assumption. We'll find it. We'll design our way out of it. If we hit, if we hit an obstacle, there'll always be another way. I mean, there's a so for example, if if we go back sort of you know thirty forty years, uh, where were what was the dominant source of rare earths? I mean, uh, the US had a, had a had a mine, for example, closed down for economic reasons because it seemed to be cheaper to get the stuff from from China and other countries. Now these things are opening up again. Mm. Um, there's a big potential rare earths. Um, uh, deposit in uh, in Serbia as well, which is being looked at. So, you know, the, 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 it's not going to be smooth. But I and then there's recycling, of course, as well, because all of these things can be recycled. 
But you only get a recycling industry building up when it becomes sort of very obviously economical to do so. So this, again, is, is something I think that policymakers could be looking at, is yeah. just ways to stimulate these uh, these recycling uh, industries. Well. And we'd have to make sure, wouldn't we, that we're not reliant on on those countries that are producing those that those minerals that are required for the manufacture of, of renewable energy, because otherwise, you know, we've, we've shifted from uh, countries that are providing us with those. Uh, to, yeah, you know. we're back to the Russia issue, yeah. aren't we, in a different yeah. form? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that, yep, that's completely right. Yeah. What about the whole concept, though, of net zero as a useful way way of reaching the point we want to reach, Rich. I mean, a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism within your own community of scientists involved in this as well, saying, actually, is it is setting a target in that way? Is it actually perhaps damaging because people try and reach targets in certain ways, perhaps ignore other things? It, it, it's not a flexible way of attempting to deal with the whole problem of carbon emissions. And in fact, you know, seeking the best might be the enemy of the good. Well, uh, net zero itself stems from science, pure and simple. So basically, this was a piece of is, is sort of science that emerged about 10, 15 years ago, where basically it became clear that the eventual amount of global warming you get is proportional to the total amount of carbon dioxide that you chuck into the air. So the corollary of that is that if you want to stop global warming at any temperature level 1.5 to 2.5 whatever if you want to stop it you have to reach net zero because the more carbon dioxide you keep chucking into the atmosphere the more the climate will warm and we're already seeing you know a lot of evidence around us of the damage that this is doing earlier in the year the intergovernmental panel on climate change released a report which is i mean i i i I hate to use the word terrifying because i think it's overused in this context but it's certainly very sobering in terms of the impacts that we're already seeing and, and will see. So there's your equation. If you don't reach global net zero, you know, this is, this is you know, w- within a certain time scale, basically these are the extra impacts that we're going to let ourselves in for. Now, is it a useful framework? I think it is. There's a fairly um, <laughs> a good, good analogy for this, I think, in that, you know, President Kennedy didn't say, um, we're going to try sending a, ro- a rocket about sort of halfway to the moon. And um, yeah, if that works, then we'll send it a bit further and maybe eventually we'll like get to the moon. He said, we're going to go to the moon in 10 years. And what that did was concentrate minds. And then, okay, right. Okay. How do we do this? What bits don't we know how to do? Which bits do we know how to do? Where do we need to focus attention? It gives a framework. Net zero gives a framework. And basically what it says is, you know, if you are in the electricity industry, if you're in the steel industry, whatever, your uh, current way of doing things has got a limited time. So um, basically there's this alternative that's looking promising. You know, is it promising enough? If not, we better look for something else. You know, where are we going to invest basically? Um, in, in order, you know, now that only works really if you've got a credible um, regulatory framework, or um, if you've, you know, if if you're if you're confident that those carbon targets are actually going to be imposed. Um, I mean, the UK is actually a really good example of this. So the UK has these five-year carbon bu- carbon budgets, as they're called. They set the maximum amount of emissions over each five-year period, and they're set in advance by parliament, they're agreed. They don't specify exactly what has to happen in each sector, but they're, they're pretty, you know, they, they, make, they, make, they make it clear what, what, the, what the common sense things are that should happen in each sector. And then 
you know, the minister has to report back to parliament, basically, and has to say, yes, we met this year, we didn't meet it kind of thing. Um, so, so that's not a bad framework. Um, but you know, is it going to happen? I mean, who can who can tell? But well, surely, isn't isn't the point in all this that that you, it, I keep coming back to this political will issue? But it does seem to be important. And people have been looking at weather events this year. People look at the uh, the, the UN panels, as you say, dire and terrifying predictions. I mean, a lot of people might just throw their hands up and say, "Well, it, it, there's nothing we can do. It's already here. Uh, we, we're already suffering. We've just got to adapt rather than." Try and reduce. Or conversely, and this is a question I was going to ask, is, you know, a lot of people just see the scaremongering, don't they? And so you provide data and then they they use that as say, well, that's just is so extreme, it's unbelievable. And the more data you use, the more people, you know, with social media being the way it is, the more they can pick and choose the, the, the numbers that they want to choose. So for and I'll give you an example. I'm looking at a, 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 a the UK Action on Climate Change uh, website. And they're showing change. There's a graph here showing change in UK emissions 2019 to 2021. And it shows there's a 59% reduction in emissions by the aviation industry. Well, of course there was because no, no one was flying. Yeah, so you, exactly. And you see graphs like that and you think, well, that's a bit useless. Are they trying to make a point here? They're not, actually not helping themselves because anybody who wants to pull apart these figures are going to say, you know, well, that, that is obviously the reason why. You know what I'm saying? The more numbers you provide, the more people can pull it apart. And it's a complicated issue, but it needs needs to be in the in in the mainstream conversation and there'll always be people who want to pull it apart and uh, because they're fearful of the change and they feel like that change is going to impact their lifestyle in a negative way so we've talked a lot about all of this being new methods of production i think for a lot of people they're not thinking that their life is you know going to continue as normal if the climate change uh, fraternity win their day, they see that you're going to change the way they live their life. There's going to be some compromise. There's going to be uh, perhaps rationing introduced. They're not going to be able to live the same quality of life. Yeah, I think every I, everything that you both said is entirely valid there. And um, I, I think that some sometimes environment groups don't do themselves a favour really by talking about oh how difficult the transformation the transition is going to be personally i don't believe it is going to be difficult and and you know i i, I know there are plenty of disagree with me but let me just outline why we've had as i said in the uk we've you know we've halved emissions in 30 years and no one's really noticed apart from the few people that don't like wind turbines really no one's no one's noticed um so what are the next bits we need to do switching from a petrol or diesel fuel car to an electric car is really not a big deal. I mean, contingent on charging points, but the market will largely deliver theirs just as the market has delivered, you know, filling stations. Um, electric cars are, are so similar to petrol or diesel cars, it's almost a bit of a disappointment when you go and drive one, really, expecting something a bit more special. Okay, your home heating system. Now, this is one thing I think where there, there will be there will be a, 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 something that you have to do here. It's about insulation, and it's about really for most people getting a heat pump. But you do that once, and you've got a house that should be warmer uh, and cheaper to heat. Um, industry people are not going to feel the difference if steel is made using hydrogen versus being made using uh, coking coal. They're not going to notice that. Land use, some people will will notice a difference. I think, uh, you know, if you live in the countryside, then you, you should see a difference in the types of farming that's done. But overall, that's a story of opportunity, because how are we going to get to negative emissions? Basically, by doing more things with the land we have, by planting trees, by restoring peat, 
by maybe growing trees and using them uh, for, for timber and buildings and so on. So overwhelming, that's a story of opportunity. So I, I just don't, I just don't buy this idea that there's a massive transformation in lifestyles needed. Diet is often positive, isn't it? You know, people are going to have to go vegan. No, they're not. The science doesn't say that. The science talks about a reduction in the eating of red meat. So switching, you know, from beef and lamb to pork and chicken, it doesn't feel like a massive lifestyle change to me. No. Well, you know, and you'll feel better for it. And that's for sure. So uh, you have you, you've sort of answered a lot of questions here where we came into this episode sort of talking about, well, net zero chance, you know, is it all believable? And you've you've towed the line very much or you've promoted the line that, yes, it is all achievable. It's not going to be that difficult, which makes me think the biggest ob- obstacle we've got actually is the PR exercise behind yeah, it. It's the, it's the politics, isn't it, Rich? I mean, if. I mean, you, you sound very optimistic. I guess to some extent you have to. Um, but okay, if we were doing this in 2050, I guess probably we won't be around then. Do you think? Do you believe that we will be looking back and say, "Yes, we achieved it. It happened. We got there. We did the necessary, and it came out right." I mean, do, in your heart of hearts, do you think it will happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a question that I answer differently on different days. To be honest, um, I. I I think that a certain a certain amount of the transition is inevitable. I think the transition away from coal, oil and gas to renewables and storage and electric cars is inevitable because frankly there's no good reason for it not to happen. I'm less optimistic in other areas and the most challenging uh certainly when you look at it on a global basis is land use because you know we're seeing deforestation, for example, continue. We're seeing loss of biodiversity continue. We're seeing growing pressure uh, for growing food and so on. And we've got examples from the past, for example, the, the, the rush to biofuels about 15 years ago, which had some very negative impacts on people's lives in the developing world. So that is the thorniest bit of the, of the whole equation. Um, so th- there are two types of optimism, aren't there? There's the kind of um, passive optimism where you say, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's going to happen. And there's the engaged optimism, the active opposition, where you, uh, uh, optimism, where you where you say, yeah, this is possible. Actually, it is possible, and it needs X, Y, Z to happen in order to turn that into reality. So that's the camp of of of, of optimism that I am into. The politics, the global politics, are simultaneously easier and more difficult than they were. Uh, two years ago. So on the one hand, we've got the Russian invasion of Ukraine showcasing the dangers of continued reliance uh, on international oil and gas. On the other hand, we've got the growing divides between China and the US and Europe. And, you know, for example, the recent uh, spat over over Taiwan, where China singly out, you know, climate change is one of the areas that we will not work with the US on uh, now. Um, so, so you know, it, 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 it's a it's a it's a it's a fluid situation, and and it's more kind of volatile, I think, than it looked a couple of years ago. But but overall, for me, you, can't, you keep coming back to this point about what is the rationale for making these transitions versus not making these transitions, and the reasons for making the transitions are just increasing all the time. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate your time. By the way, on the land use thing, very easy solution to that one: eat less. I've I've done it, and I've I've just lost fifteen kilos by eating less. I should add at this point, Richard. There's 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 someone making a case for themselves in the background of this. A certain Phil Dobby is not the man he was a few months ago. I wish I could follow you. (laughs) I don't don't think you need to compared to how where I was. But anyway, Richard, good to have you. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Fascinating discussion. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. 
I tell you what, he completely turned us around there. I mean, I wasn't totally cynical about all of this, but I mean, yeah. listening to him, you're thinking, well, of course, you know, is there any argument? Yeah, well, when, when he came up, obviously, with the science, but also I think and it was very interesting at the end that he, he genuinely believes that this is, I think, going to happen, at least mm. uh, if not in total, pretty much. And, uh, you know, that does my heart good. I mean, let's say the weather we've been having, the doom-laden things we've been hearing on all sides, uh, yeah. you would think we aren't and, going anywhere. Well, maybe, just maybe we are. And the Russian situation certainly moving the agenda along. So it does, it does show, doesn't it, that, uh, you know, a lot of it is public relations. Hey, I tell you somebody else who, uh, or some another organisation that needs help with public relations, and that's the BBC. Who, who? The BBC. The BBC? <laughs> the BBC. Anyway. <laughs> they, they yes, got, it looks no, like we could, well, we could well have a Prime Minister who's out to get them. You do realise that, yes. don't you? Yes, yes, he has said a few things that do sound uh, somewhat um, antipathetic, I would say, to that great organisation, which I have some interest, that has to be said, you know, cards on the table. Uh, but yeah, no, the next podcast, we are going to be talking about the future of the BBC. How should it be funded? What sort of organisation should it be when, you know, the kids aren't watching telly, the mm. kids mainly aren't listening to BBC radio. They are online to some extent on the BBC News website, but not as many as there were. I mean, what is the answer? Yeah. And does it have a value that we still have to try and preserve? Because after all, it's got a worldwide reputation. And at a point where we're rather worried about all the nonsense that is out there, at least we might claim most of the time it does hold on to the facts yeah. so that's what we're going to be talking about next yeah, week yeah and, and look I know a lot of optimism is there from your question how should it be funded there's a lot of people out there saying should it be funded at all so we'll look at that next week on the, on the podcast good to have you listening in today thanks for your time The Why Curve